Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We are joined today by Sheldon Lee, a co-founder and the CEO at Buy and Ship. Sheldon, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I also want to thank you as well for just being so flexible. The other time that we were supposed to record, my travel plans got in your way. So I just really appreciate you being so understanding about this. Really, I appreciate no. it. Thank you. Thank you for having me and, and inviting me. I think it's my, my pleasure to you know, be able to share on your platform. Yeah, and yeah. I've wanted to do this for a while, right? Because I'm just super interested in all the stuff that you're doing. And before we jump into the main part of this conversation, let's get some of your background just so we have some context for the rest of this, yeah? No, some personal things. I was born in Canada, um, but I grew up in Hong Kong, okay. um, uh, in Winnipeg, actually, where I was born. I, I heard it's super cold, but I never got to experience it because I was brought back to Hong Kong when I was three months old, still baby. Got it. Right. And then wait till I was 16. Then I went back to Canada for high school and university. Uh, I went to University of Toronto. I studied actuarial science, even though I'm in logistics right now, but I was really uh, into mathematics. Yeah. What year were you born? 86. I'm a tiger. In a, do you know Chinese? Uh, yeah, I do. I'm a, a, I'm, a, I'm a snake. I'm not sure I'm proud of that, but that's what I am. <laughs> born in the year of the snake. But this is funny too. So I was born in the year of the snake. My wife was born in the year of the snake, right? And my daughter was also born in the year of the snake. Now, wow. and all of that was in Japan, right? So, well, I mean, I wasn't born in Japan. But I remember one time we were in Japan talking to some other lady, some friend of my wife's, and we told her that. And then we said, okay, so now you should be able to guess like how old we are because we're ah. old and it's only a 12 year cycle. And it was the year my daughter was born and she was like, um, 38 or 39. And I'm like, it's not a multiple of 12. How would that be possible? Yeah. You, you look 24. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I definitely wasn't 24. Oh, such a great thing. Well, that's awesome. And. Why was your family in Canada at the time? Oh, actually, uh, you know, when my father was young, he immigrated to, to Canada. Yeah. So I think back in the um, 70s or 80s, Hong Kong was announced to be returning back to China. Yeah. And at that time, I think a lot of people in Hong Kong was really worried about the future. They don't know what it would be like. Right. right? So many people fled to Hong Kong. Um, you know, my, my father was one of them. Yeah, right. so that that's what I want to know. And I was hoping actually you were born like in 1990 or like 1995. When I was in Japan, right, as it got closer and closer to the handover in 1997, I remember a lot of families, you're right, there had been a strong relationship between Canada and Hong Kong anyway, and they've definitely welcomed the Hong Kong Chinese, whether it was in Toronto or Winnipeg or Vancouver or wherever it was. And as it got closer and closer, a lot of people left. And then as it felt like things were normalized, a lot of people came back. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Actually, when when the, the handover happened, my dad was already back. Right. Like after I was born, he never went back to Canada. <laughs> and, and he was telling me like, oh, it was actually a great opportunity because a lot of people left. It means that there are a lot of opportunities yeah. left behind yeah. in the city. Right. And he was able to, uh, you know, leverage on that and did really well for himself. It's a really good point, right? Because... The people that did leave actually had the means for the most part to leave, but also were very well educated. They were concerned about how they were going to be able to apply their education and their skills. And again, at the end of the day, it wasn't the problem that people expected at all, really. 
And yeah, if you came back and a certain percentage of people were already gone, you're like, okay, I can do whatever I want really well. So that's super cool. So good, good for your dad and, and for your mom. Yeah. And, and actually the business he, he founded in Hong Kong was inspired in from Canada. What was it? So he was doing some delivery for, for companies, you know, across towns when he was in Canada. I love it. Right. So he ended up, when he was back in Hong Kong, he was like, oh, I can do the same thing here. Like, uh, he was telling me back in the days, every company has a, you know, messenger in-house to do deliveries for the company. Right. And he was like, oh, I can actually hire a bunch of people to share the resources so they can help companies save money. And that's how he started his delivery business. But in a way, in a way, this is super relevant for you too, right? And we'll talk about buy and chip in a second. Yeah. But your dad was early in this concept of abstracting away something that corporates do and even SMEs do and saying, you do it alone, you do it alone, you do it alone, but all the resources that you're using on the back end are the same. I'll build the back end for you. And then either you can plug in your resources or I'll give you the resources as well. Like it was this, it was way ahead of his time for what ends up in the software world being a SaaS business, but back then it was probably like a resource as a service business or a RAS business kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, on human capital yeah. you know, workforce. Oh, so interesting. I didn't know that. Talk to me a little bit about buy and ship, what the idea was, why you decided to do this, and, and how long ago you started it. Okay, so uh, we started company back in 2014, uh, November, right? Quite a while ago, Yeah. right? Uh, we are B2C cross-border shopping tool so we help people buy things overseas um you know the reason why i started it i usually tell people about the story of my sister like it's a true story tell me uh, <laughs> yeah uh well my sister is very price sensitive ever since she was young right sometimes i go to a convenience store 7-eleven to buy a bottle of water and she would complain that why didn't you just cross the road to the circle k you know it's one dollar cheaper she's great it's just one dollar. Come on, right? But she has this uh, uh, mentality of, uh, you know, doing all enough research to make sure you're buying at the great, the best value, right? And at some point, she start buying things from the states back to Hong Kong and asked me to handle it for her, right? And that's when I realized there's uh, two things. First thing is that same product, same brand, exact same thing, right? Can be fifty percent cheaper across the border, right? Kevin Klein, uh, Lululemon, uh, anything you can you, you can think of. But at the same time, like buying things overseas is quite difficult. You know, back in the days, a lot of my, my, my friends was ask their cousin to receive the parcel for them and then to port it back to, to where they are, yeah. right? Asking the family to help. And that's why we started Financial. You know, we just want to give access to consumer to buy things everywhere in the world at the best value. So one of the things that happens though, and one of the reasons why it's more expensive, one, not the only one, is because when it gets to the country where it's being purchased to or sent to, there are taxes, customs taxes, all these things, right, that are applied to it. And that can raise the price quite a bit, right? So you could buy Lululemon in New York for a hundred bucks, but you have to pay this fee and that fee and then that fee. And by the time it gets to you, it's 200 bucks. And like in Thailand, there's some stuff where it's triple tax. It's just everybody knows it. So a lot of people will like go to France, go to the United States, even today, come to Japan, buy things, put them in a suitcase, and then go back and even sell them at less than the given price there, but still more than the price that somebody would have to pay if they went to Japan on their own and bought it. How do you solve that problem? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, tax is one of the uh, contribution to the price arbitrage, but the bigger one is actually all the middlemen that is reselling it. Distributors, retailers, yep. you know, to open the shop in Hong Kong is super expensive, the rent, right? And that's why they have higher costs and they have to sell at higher price, right? Versus us, when we help our customers buy directly from the brand in the States, there's no more middlemen, right? And eventually, more interestingly, is that even though our consumers are saving money, the merchant, the seller is making more compared to going to distributors and sell to the same consumer. Ah, because you can take some of that price. And again, let's go back to this. But if it's $100 for, let's say, you know, product X, this distributor, that middleman, that middle person adds some stuff in, it's 175 bucks, whatever it is, right? And by the time it gets to Hong Kong, it's $200. I'm just making something up. Yeah. But if you eliminate that, you can actually pay them more and still have it be cheaper when you get it, yeah? Exactly, right. Oh. Um, we did around 3 million transactions last year. Oh my God. Right, And we always ask our customer, uh, why did you use our service and buy from, you know, wherever you are, like Japan, Italy, Italy, or States, right? And the data tell us that, you know, after pay for shipping and tax, like import tax, they can still save on average 28.5%, right? And I haven't even asked the merchant for discount yet. They're selling at their listing price right. in their home country, right? Another data is that half of this transaction is not even available locally. Like the same product is not here. Sometimes the brand is here, but then the collection is not here. Why does that... Or the size is yeah. not available. And why, why does that happen though? And it could be a rhetorical question for you because you may not even know why, right? But again, I've lived outside my home country for 30 something years, right? I was born and raised in the United States and then I've lived in Asia since February of 1990. And yeah, there were a lot of times where I would, when I went home either for a business trip or just to visit my family, you know, I'd go to Walmart or Costco or something and just wave in toothpaste, like 15 at a time. And literally at the checkout counter, the woman would say to me, she would kind of lean in and just go, where do you live? On the moon? Like, you, like, how is there a place where you can't get this? But in fact, that's true. And it's probably still true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the seller, they can't keep everything at their inventory, right? Right. They will have to put a lot of cash and they don't know if what it can sell, right? And a lot of like brands, they customize uh, their product to, I mean, localize it to right, the market, right. right? And that's why there's difference. And not to mention that, you know, every country has their own uh, promotion period, right? You know, like yeah. uh, how about they like to do double 11, you know, in Japan it's like new year. And then the state is like Black Friday, right. Christmas, presidential day. No, there's always some promotion happening somewhere in the world at different timing. It's just yeah. that without globalization, giving access, you just don't know about it or you don't you don't get access about it, right? You had 3 million transactions, you said, last year, and then you said the data tells you X, Y, and Z. How big of a data infrastructure have you had to build as you grow the business, right? Because the more insights you can get, like you said, you know, when you're doing... 10 transactions a month, you can't go to a supplier and say, give me a 15% discount. But as you get bigger and bigger, then you can just go, you're buying in bulk. I'm putting it in quotes, right? How powerful has the data become for you after you started in 2014? So you have almost 10 years of data. Do you see as you get more and more data that becomes more and more impactful for you? Well, absolutely. Uh, 
aside from the data that help us uh, improve the conversion, meaning that we can find the right deals and do the right marketing to get the transaction. Right. But at the same time, more powerful thing is the GMV that we are generating. Three million transactions in our platform is generating 400 million US dollar in GMV. That's the purchasing power of my customer, right? Right now, we're very focused on just consumer because you know running business, you can't go B2B and B2C at the same time. It's, it's very distracting. Yep. Very hard. It's different DNA, different mindset, different team, right? So we're only dealing with merchants, uh, uh, consumers, and we haven't even started going to merchants and say, hey, how about I help you sell more? Sometimes we get you know a marketplace or merchants knocking on our door. For example, last year, one of the... Um, large marketplace from Japan. They told me that, hey, Sheldon, I see that uh, buy and ship customers are spending 10 million Hong Kong dollars a month on my platform. Can you generate more sales for us? Right. right? So they gave us some marketing dollar. Uh, we marketed to our community. Right. We did some uh, uh, campaign. Then now our customers are spending 20 million Hong Kong dollars on that marketplace a month. Doubled. So, so... Do you consider then building your own, and maybe you're already doing this, you've already done it, right? I like to say that e-commerce is not solved yet. I really don't think it is, right? When people think about e-commerce, they think about Amazon, right? They think in Japan about Rakuten or or whatever it is, right? In Southeast Asia, Lazada. But I don't think the marketplaces are are the final destination for e-commerce, at least not those big ones, right? Because they're too general for me. But I think what you're suggesting is that as you have more and more, like $400 million of GMV, it's big. Like, I don't even think I need to say it. It's redundant to say it. But as individual suppliers now start to have a relationship with you that's strong and they trust you, and you go from X million dollars to $20 million, and they actually give you a marketing budget, you're now kind of building your own marketplace in a way, right? Because if five of them do it, well, then 10 of them could do it. And at some point, they could have a better relationship with you than they have with some of those other big marketplaces that we've mentioned. Are you building that too? Or would you build just like individual stores that are run by buy and ship that look like it's from those guys, but actually you're building and running? How does that work? Well, um, one point is that when merchants sell on Amazon, for example, yep. they have to give Amazon 15 to 30%. 30 for retail, yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, and same in Hong Kong or 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 different marketplace. Absolutely. That's how marketplace make money. Right. For us, our vision is that there should be one platform that has every product available in the world here, right? And then we should be able to compare all the offerings and give you the best price for the same product. Right. And the experience has to be the same as shopping locally, meaning that you see it, you use your local credit card, pay for it. You get it delivered to your home. You don't want it. You, you return it locally. That's a very much experience like the marketplace. But marketplace is just a very front end how the consumer sees it. Right. What happens in the back can be very different. Yeah. For example, uh, traditional e-commerce, there's two ways of selling things. One, you open the marketplace, ask people to list their product, and you sell it. Right. Or like an online retailer, Walmart, they open an online store, they take inventory, and then they sell it. But both cases, you are relying on uh, merchants to create your catalog. Right. Meaning that you need a procurement team knocking on doors, talking to brands, list their product to your platform. But what we have built is that I'm able 
to sell anything as long as at the URL, meaning the uh, as long as this product is online somewhere in the world, because I have the infrastructure built. Today, if you give me a URL of a product from the States, I can create a checkout process, meaning that I can charge you, you can pay with your credit card, and then I have the logistic to deliver to your home. So theoretically, I don't really need to work with merchants in order to sell anything. Right. So theoretically, I can add one, well, 10 million SKU into my marketplace in one week. But then how non-trivial does the back end have to be, right? And how different is the back end from a traditional marketplace? If you understand what I mean, right? Because you're right. Absolutely. If I want to sell on Lazada, the 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 merchant then has to sign up, log in, do all this other kind of stuff on their own. And what you're suggesting is that for you, it's reverse. You see a product or someone says to you, hey, Sheldon, I really want to get product XYZ, but I don't know how to get it. And if I do get it, it's all these other problems for me. And you go, where are you trying to buy it from? And they say from here. Sorry, go ahead. What at the beginning, we have a person actually making a purchase online for you. It's like a personal shopper, right, in the back end. Right? Wow. But at the same time, there are RPA, like robotic process automation yep. type of solution that can replace the human. So we're building RPA on different marketplaces to automate this process to make it scalable. Okay, so this, I mean, the, the, the elephant in the room then is, how has the existence of even more powerful artificial intelligence tools that people are talking about recently changed the way you look at building your RPA stuff? Because when you started back in 2014, sure, there were, plenty, there were plenty of tools for automation. Most of them you'd have to generate yourself. And as you get into 16, 18, 20, things have changed. But now it's just like pff, everything's different, no? Yeah, uh, I think on, say, OpenAI, the, the most interesting thing that came, I mean, they unleashed is that uh, in the past, price comparison site uses keyword to to match product. Yep. Right. I'll, I'll say price comparison site are 70% accurate when they match the product. Right. But now with, you know, AI, we can use multi-model, like uh, more attributes to identify what product it is and match them together, right? So I see a huge potential for us to build a tool to compare a product across the world, you know, for the best price using the AI with 99% accuracy. Right. And with our infrastructure, I can now sell you the best offering of the same product in the world, just like shopping locally. Right. I want to get back to the shopping locally thing too, because I think it's fascinating. So what you're suggesting is if the same product is available, let's say in the United States, in Japan, and in Europe somewhere, or even in China somewhere, but I live in Hong Kong, let's say, or in Thailand, I can use the platform. And as FX rates move around, and as different variables move and change, and as import taxes change, you're tracking all this bees, stuff, right? yeah, all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. That, that the product that I want to buy today, maybe I would buy last week from the United States and next month I, I would buy from London. That's the kind of experience that it should be. Right? Yeah. Like if you if you want it faster, obviously you can buy it locally. Sure, sure. Paying sure. a premium. But I think we deserve to have the option at least to buy the lowest price, the best offering in the world. Yeah, so I, I want to give you an equivalency here and, and see what you think. 
you know, this is years ago when people used to buy DVDs and they had a DVD that had three regions, right? I don't even know what they were, but it was probably like North America, Europe, and Asia. It was probably more than that, but you had region one, region two, and region three. And what that meant was that if you bought a DVD player in Japan, you could only buy a DVD that was made for Japan, controlled by software that was on it. And then there were places that made what was called region-free DVDs because the arbitrage, and I want to talk about ARB with you as well, was so unfair to people that lived in Japan or that lived in Thailand that they were pirating stuff, for sure, because they knew that the pricing was unfair. Then they bought the region-free DVD player, which I did do. I probably had three of them for like all the rooms where I had a TV. And then I could buy it anywhere, right? And yeah, yeah sorry. So, so it's kind of the same thing. But I think the ARB is actually a really interesting idea, right? So you said arbitrage in passing, but I don't think most people understand what arbitrage means. Same product, different prices at different times in different time zones and in different places. And I'm convinced that over time, and I'm curious about your opinion about this, but I'm convinced that over time that platforms like this are going to eliminate the ARB, right? Because as technology drives e-commerce at scale, it won't make any sense because somebody in Hong Kong is going to be able to buy the thing from the U.S. at the same price. And then somebody at the U.S. is going to go, I can get that cheaper in Hong Kong, but I'm not going to Hong Kong. I'm going to do that thing in reverse. And then the price is just going to revert to a mean somehow, no? And you're going to drive that, no? Absolutely. Well, um, logistic as an example. Go ahead. Back 20 years ago, logistic company make a lot of money from the intransparency of logistic fees. Yeah. So they don't have like a fixed price. You get a quotation, they talk to you, they figure out how much you're willing to pay, and then they give you a price. Right. That's how they maximize yeah. their, their margin, right? That's because technology wasn't there to make everything transparent. Right. But as the uh, world, you know, internet, uh, everything is getting more transparent, easy to access. Not right now, everything is more transparent. Even logistic fees is listing price. So I think it's the same for every product. I agree. Right. Unless I can hide it from you, then I can maximize my margin and charge you more. Yeah. But once everything is transparent, everything is going to uh, converge to the same price. I agree. Yeah, I agree. You're definitely going to see this reversion to the same price. And I'll give you the perfect example of this. Yesterday, I was out buying a television set. Like, this is a true story. And, you know, they have a price for it that's there. And then they go, and we'll give you a little bit of a discount. And I just go on my phone and I'm like, I can buy it like 20% cheaper right now online, but I'm here and I want to buy it now. And the guy was like, oh, okay. But if I hadn't done that, I wasn't going to, because I have more information than I would have had 15 years ago, let's say, or 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. And that dude would have sold me something way more expensive because I had no way of checking and I'm not walking to three other stores to do it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You talked about logistics, which is also very important and a big part of e-commerce, right? You posted something recently about like building a sustainable and eco-friendly partnerships and stuff around this. First of all, maybe you can talk about that a little bit, but then talk about as well about why that's so important to you. Okay, so um, I think you're referring to Alfred Twenty Four. Yes, sir. Post. Yeah. So um, Alfred Twenty Four. Um, I'm also a shareholder. I founded the company together with my partners, right? But uh, they run it. I'm on the board. Great. Right. And the vision of Alfred 24 is that because my father do delivery, has been doing delivery for 30 years, right? Uh, I've been experiencing it for so long and I just find it very inefficient, right? For, give you a number, the best delivery man of 
my father's company can do 60 deliveries a day. 60. 60. Yeah. Right. Uh, the best delivery man at, say, uh, Sunfum Express, SF Express, they probably do like 120 because it's more uh, uh, dense. Right. But then at that time, we we're thinking, how can we maximize this? Right. And then I learned about in Singapore, Singapore Post has been building parcel lockers, you know, installing yeah. in the city. And then they told me that the best delivery man can do 600 deliveries a day. 600. But it's more than just route optimization, right? So we can talk about route optimization and where traffic is and how to use maps is, but it's more than that, right? It's actually consolidation because yeah. this band now goes to 10 points and each locker can do 60 deliveries, right. just fill in the lockers yeah. for, in 15 minutes. And then he goes to another point. So this guy only have to go to 10 points to do 600 deliveries. Versus back then, I have to do 60 drop-off to do 60 process. Right. Right. So we did a study, we did a calculation, meaning that every 1,000 parcels we deliver with lockers, we can save 13 vents 13? on the street. 13. That's every 1,000 parcels. That's a lot. And, you know, in Europe, it's, for, it's very, very common, right? Uh, there's a company called InPost. They've done study on how much carbon emission they can save sure. per parcel delivered to lockers. And that's how the way should be, right? And it's not only uh, more clean. At the same time, the merchant have to, can bear less logistic costs right? because the cost of logistics is this, the salary of that person and the van and how many orders they can de deliver and split the cost, right? Yeah. Instead of dividing by 60, now they can divide by 600. Right. Right. Um, so it's cheaper, it's more efficient, and it's greener. And, you know, our CEO is uh, from Italy. Um, he came from a small town called um, Sardinia, right? Where the nature is beautiful. Sardinia. And then he was telling me that he has two kids now. He's just wishing that when his grandson or grandchildren is born, the world is still as beautiful as it is right now. It's a really That's his uh, yeah. passion and why he's so focused in this business. It's a really good point. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, right, in March of what, 2020, and then April didn't leave the apartment, and then May didn't leave the apartment, and probably in the middle of June, and I remember looking outside, and I live in a big city, right? I live in Bangkok, and I remember looking outside and just thinking, it doesn't look normal outside. It looks better, but it doesn't look normal. And I had this thought of just like, maybe we should take like a month off every year. But if that's the impact of all the carbon emissions, and I'm simplifying to make a point, then we should figure out a way, or it's incumbent upon us to figure out a way how to get back to that. You're right. So your grandkids, as silly as that sounds, can see the earth in the same beautiful way that our grandparents did. They didn't even think about it because it just wasn't as dirty as it is today. They didn't have to. But to be able to look up, there's a very famous story, right? of a Japanese guy, this is back in the mid nineties, taking his son to Hawaii and his kid looking up at the sky at night and going, daddy, daddy, what's in the sky? And his dad was like, those are stars. And he said, how come we don't have those in Japan? <laughs> yeah. When I was in Canada, it's, I can see so many stars. Yeah, it's amazing, right? But not in Hong Kong. Can I ask you this too? And cause you said this, and I agree with you, building a B2B, building a B2C, excuse me, business and building a B2C business 
are just like two different lanes. They're parallel, but they kind of don't intersect a lot, right? You have to be considering that. And you're right, because I do this too. I have a B2C business and I have a B2B business. And there isn't a lot of overlap. And you're right, the teams have to be different because the mentality is different and the output is different, right? Because the inputs are different. Are you thinking about doing this too for B2B? Because there's so much going on here, right? Because you're building the, the purchase side business in the marketplace. You're also investing in the infrastructure around the logistics. So you're building all the rails here for this. And once you figure that part out, actually the B2B business should be relatively easier because it's bigger scale and fewer deliveries, right? So that helps too. And then you can partner with local merchants to get products at a way better price for them as well. And then in the same way, that $20 million you were talking about from the seller or the supplier in Japan turns into 200 or $400 million because now you're handling all of the stuff that they're bringing into whichever country you're bringing it into. Is, is, does all that make sense? Am I thinking about this the right way? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, when I look at our business, I see there are a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Right? There are many ways to add a new revenue stream. But at the same time, I think we also need to focus, right? Until we exploit uh, the growth of a certain revenue stream, if we, you know, distract ourselves to, you know, adding a new one, then it hurt both uh, revenue stream. Yeah, I right? agree. And doing one thing is a commitment. Commitment means I have to put resources, I have to build the team to run it. Yep. So if today I want to do B2B, I would invest 10 headcounts to do it. But at the same time, I was thinking, if I put these 10 headcounts into cost per acquisition, acquiring new users, then I'll get better results in two years. Right. Because the cost per acquisition of a new customer is still very, uh, giving us very good return. Yeah. Right. So I think it's like parties and and milestones, uh, when to do the uh, different opportunities. I mean, isn't that one of the most fun things about running a business that's actually growing and being successful is that you're constantly playing this like three-dimensional chess around, we can definitely do this, that'll make us more money, but doing that actually means we have to, we can't do that. And if we don't do that, then we actually, let's do this instead, right? Because the market's also moving in real time too. It's not, none, none of it is static, right? And that makes it fun and maybe this gets back to your math skills. If you're really good at math, if you know how to do that, it really helps you on the analysis side, no? Well, yes, definitely. It's priorities. It's also priorities. Yeah. I think it's very tough to make a decision on priorities. And sometimes it changes like every month when, you know, senior is different. But uh, the value of the entrepreneur is to make the right decision on priorities. Yeah. Where to put our resources. Right. Where to focus, right? Do you remember the first time you said no to something that you knew was going to make you money? And I don't want to know what necessarily what it is. If you do remember, it'd be great. But you must have this experience of like, we could do that. I, I'm definitely going to make some money doing that. But I'm comfortable enough with what I'm doing and there's more growth over here. I'm going to politely say, no, thank you. Do you remember that first time you did that? First time. Even if, but, but you definitely have had that happen, yeah? Definitely. Like it happens almost every month. <laughs> like <laughs> the opportunities coming up, you know, your friend will be like, hey, I think there's some synergy with this guy uh, that I know. Should I connect you? Right now, I would say, uh, no. no, it's not a good timing. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm happy to have a conversation, but I won't be able to put resources to make it happen. But we can talk maybe for future. Yeah, and don't you think that's like one of the best entrepreneurial skills? And I like your answer there too, right? You don't, you say, I won't do it, but I will still meet this person 
because it all it's always going to take more time to do it it's not like you meet the guy or gal who runs business x and they say done and you just start tomorrow it's going to take some time so it's better to take that time socialize with that person socialize the idea of doing it and then when you're ready they already know you so then you can turn it on pretty quickly yeah absolutely and you know talking to another person is always inspiring yeah right every time you talk there's something that happens in your brain oh actually there's something that i'm doing right now can be leveraged yeah. or learning some new skills yeah right? i mean i learned something um, from you i learned a bunch of things already from you today this b2b to b2c difference because i've been struggling with this myself right and you're right those lanes are super parallel they're similar but boy they're super different in many many ways I'm going to have to rethink Absolutely. a bunch of stuff. Anyway, talk to me about expansion. Like is most of your business now in Hong Kong? And if it even um, if it isn't, how do you how do you look at expanding to the rest of Asia, Southeast Asia? How does that look to you? I made so much mistakes on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. So, I, I got it. I got it. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh well, with buy and ship, um 40% of our business are from Hong Kong. Okay. Right. Um 25% are from Taiwan. And then we have 10% in Philippines. And then the rest is in about 12, 12 markets, right? Singapore, Japan, Macau, uh, Malaysia, Australia, right? These markets. Um, I have tried many different models to enter a new market. For right. example, you go there, you open an office, you hire the local people to run it. Just one way. Uh, you open a website and then you remotely manage the website from Hong Kong. The second way. Right. Uh, you can do a JV, a majority or minority that's already different, or 50-50, right. right? Or you can white label it to a, a you know, local business owner to run your business. And, um, you know, the mistakes I've made is that, you know, when we have done uh, minority business, for example, going into Indonesia, and then we hold minority and the local partner holds majority. Yeah. And then you know, we can't really capture the revenue in our book anyways. So it doesn't matter how well it does. Right. It doesn't contribute to my metric. Right. And it's a ton of work. A ton of work. Distraction. Yeah. If I am majority and the local partner is minority, because what we're building is not a dividend business, very soon they'll be like, mm, what am I doing? I don't see money coming into my pocket. Right. They get distracted. Opportunity cost, they're going to start doing something else. Right. And then this just go into like an orphan. I'll call that business an orphan because no one is giving effort, making effort to it. Right. Right. Managing from Hong Kong and then remotely is nice, but then you cannot fully exploit the potential yeah. because it's not fully localized. Right. Opening an office running yourself is expensive. Right. And it might not work because there's a lot of management costs. Right. So these are things I've tried. To share what I find the most efficient way, the effective totally. way, uh, is what we did in Philippines. Right. So Philippines market is two years old for us, but then it's it has already grown to our third largest market. Super. So what we did differently is called venture building model. So we did a JV with a local partner, but we also have a two years contract to roll up their shares to my holding company shares, and the number of shares will depend on the size of the business after two years. So the first two years, the local partner is going to uh, contribute a lot to make sure that it will generate a lot of revenue in order to you know, uh, convert to more shares of our company. And two years later, we will become the shareholder of my holding company, which we align except uh, path. Yeah. 
align our interest, long-term interest. So, so far, I find this model the most efficient way. And in the end of the day, I think going into a new market, definitely have to leverage local partners. But the best way to align, uh, to work with local partner is to align long-term interests. I agree. Whose idea was this? Because it's a really interesting idea. Or was it just- Oh, it's actually our investor. <laughs> so that's what I want to ask you. So I, w I really wanted to know like what the investor's view was on this because it creates some dilution for them, right? But it also gives you, in a way, in a way, the company in the Philippines, at some, in some sense, is buying those shares by creating higher GMV for you and growing it faster because now it can't become, well, it could, but it probably won't become an orphan because they're paying super close attention to it because they're watching you grow in other markets and it gives them access to that growth if they can buy their way in by getting their GMV up to some pre-agreed level. I'm guessing that you can have any kind of way of doing this, but the investor must be super happy because they're feeding money into the business, which then you can use for growth. And they only get diluted if they reach that point. And that's kind yeah. of cool, no? And the investors Absolutely. help you come up with that idea. Sorry, that's cool. Yeah, there's dilution, but then the uh, value per share is higher. Yeah, yeah, that's my point. That's my point. So it's a great idea, right? Because the other type of dilution that an investor would have is if another investor came in and just gave you money and no other business, right? And now you're behind the eight ball because now you really have to start building yourself. What you've basically said to the people in the Philippines and other places is, okay, we'll do the JV with you. And if you can reach this thing, you get value two years down the road at a much higher price because you're adding value into it. So you get up here. So dilution's lower, but the cash flow in is really great. So it works both ways. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah. yeah. For example, our Philippines local JV partner, they gained eight times in asset value in two years. <laughs> Versus the money they put in, now the value of what they have on our company is eight times. Right. So let's say you want to expand into Vietnam. Would you do the same deal? And I'm not suggesting that that country, but just you understand what I mean. Now that you've learned that and it's worked, is this the way you're going to do it going forward, you think? Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's easier for us because we have done it one time. We have number to show the new partner how much they could achieve in two years. Yeah, exactly. Right? It becomes a playbook to replicate into different markets. And we're planning to do the same model in the next four markets we're going into. Got it. I'm super interested to see how this works. And would you, do you employ the same model now in Alfred, in, in Alfred 24, in the sense that if that thing is going to grow as well, if it's going to move into other markets, will you do the same thing? Well, at the right timing, definitely. I think that's the best model to go into new markets. Uh, but Alfred 24 right now, the focus is Hong Kong because we got invested by a uh, listed company, you know, uh, it's announced. And there's a huge synergy between uh, us. We could build one of the most efficient network in Hong Kong with them. So I think our next focus, again, is all about focus, right? It's Hong Kong market. So when you started this company in 2014, is this the first company you started yourself? No, actually, I started my first business when I was 24. Okay. Right. And then I sold it to uh, a listed company in Singapore. Good stuff. After five years. And then um, you know, I, I used the capital to build that business. I just think that the learnings that you've had over time, like it, it, things get clearer and clearer, like the longer you're in business, right? You said focus, also the ability to say no, right? And coming up with the right structures. And you said you've, you, 
you did a bunch of things wrong, but now you come up with a model for expansion that seems to make sense to you. Do you look back sometimes and think, because I, I have this saying that I like to say, and that is, there are things you know you know, and there are things you think you know, and it's very different, right? And there must have been a ton of things that you thought you knew back in 2014 where you were wrong, and now you look back and just go, oh yeah, I definitely didn't know that at all. You know what I mean? Definitely. I think it's so true. Um, you know, my dad is also an entrepreneur. Obviously, he's going to share a lot of uh, advice to me. Sure. And I thought I knew because he told me already. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? Dad, you told but, me. Yeah, but until I actually made that same mistake, right. I wouldn't learn it properly. Like, for example, my dad, first thing he told me that, Never do a 50-50 uh, 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 business right. with your friend because you argue and then you go to hell. Right? Yeah. And then some people hear that, oh, okay, but me and my best friend are different. We met each other since three years old. Right. We share everything. Right. We are different. Right. You're not, though. We're not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? And in the end, what he said happened. Yeah. Right. So I have learned a lot from different entrepreneurs, from mentors, but until I actually make that mistake myself, I wouldn't really learn it. Yeah. And I do this in my, I'll let you go after this, but I do that in my own parenting, understanding what it took me to learn things. And I think this is really one of the hardest things for a parent to do is watch your children make a mistake where you know what the outcome is going to be. But you're right. If you don't fall off that bicycle, you're not going to feel that pain on your knee and on your hands. And then you won't learn, one, how to get back up, even if it's painful. But two, how not to fall off again. Because if you're constantly behind somebody backseat driving, going, don't do this, don't do that, slow down, all that kind of stuff, then they'll never learn on their own. And then when the time comes for them to make a decision on their own, they're just going to muck it up, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm grateful that I've made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Got rejected by so many times. <laughs> right. And these are all adding to who I am and how I do things right now. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to let you go. Sheldon Lee, a co-founder and the CEO at Buy and Ship. That was awesome. I really appreciate your time today. And thank you again for being so patient with all the back-end logistics on this. <laughs> and like you said, it's very fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.